how many uh, how many people would be like me in that um, one time or another in your life you've gotten hooked on a home renovation TV show? Anybody had? Doesn't matter which one it was. Um, in, and, I, and I probably should blame my dad because I remember growing up this old house on PBS and, and whatever one was right after that and I never could understand why he would watch those things and now I've fallen in his footsteps, I guess, a little bit. But, uh, I, you know, I was thinking about that uh, this past week. Why, why are those shows popular, right? I mean, it's people working on a house. You know, I want to pull my hair out sometimes when I'm working on, on a project in my house and it's not going right. And here I'm sitting down for entertainment to watch somebody else do it. You know, it's like, what, so like, what, what's, the, what's the draw in that? And I thought, you know, maybe... <clears throat> Maybe it's just kind of fun to dream about what my house could look like. Man, maybe that's part of it. Um, I thought, you know, it could just be the personalities that are, that are you know, in that specific show. You know, I, I'll be honest, Fixer Upper was one that uh, hooked Megan and I in pretty good. Chip Gaines is just hilarious. I mean, I just think, uh, I, just, I just found him funny. So it could have been some of that. Uh, I, I'm sure some people watch to kind of keep up on the on the styles and what you know what's what's in style. That, that wouldn't be me at all. I really I don't give any brain space to that because I just it, my brain doesn't work that way. So, but I, I wonder if I wonder if deep down, the biggest draw to those kind of TV shows comes from the fact that these old, rundown, lots of times inadequate houses are renovated and they're transformed into something beautiful. I think, I think deep down that's the draw. I think that there's something within most people that's drawn to a good restoration story. Right? And to, to watch the transfer, transformation that can take place in a house, I think perhaps plays upon the transformation that, that we long to see in lives, that we long to see in our life, if we're honest with ourselves. When we, when we look inside of ourselves, because of our fallenness, because of our fallen nature, we see brokenness. We, we, we see brokenness there due to sin, and, and we long to see that fixed, I think, if we're honest with ourselves. And so perhaps it's fitting that, that it's a carpenter's son, Jesus, that is the one who is both willing and able to undertake that type of transformation project in our lives. It's through his power at work within us, you know, that this power that's made evident in his death and resurrection, that, that there's an incredible transformation that can and does take place in us, in our lives. And so, to that end, that, that's why I've titled this next sermon series that we're going to go through, Gospel Transformation. Gospel Transformation. For the next five weeks, we're going to look in the books of Titus and Philemon to see this, this transformation being played out. We'll see that it kind of show itself in different ways. So that's the, that's the title, that's kind of what will be the, the focus for, for these next weeks. The first four of those weeks, we're going to be in the book of Titus. That's where we're going to start. And before we dive into the text itself this morning, I want to, you know, like I typically do, just kind of give some background on, 
on the letter, the background on Titus himself, just to kind of set the tone so that we have that foundation as we read through it. So um, this letter is written by Paul, and it's written to his dear friend, his companion named Titus. Um, what we know about Titus, th th there's a few things from some other New Testament letters that kind of give us some detail about Titus himself. Um, we just spent uh, 20 weeks in 2 Corinthians. That, that's one of the books that tells us about Titus the person. Uh, it, it was Titus who took that harsh letter from Paul to the church in Corinth that we talked about, if you remember that. Titus took that letter to the church in Corinth. It was Titus who was coming back to Paul to give a report on how they received that letter. And so Titus was the one that Paul was longing to see. It was, you know, Paul even left where he was to try and catch up with Titus sooner. That, that's Titus. And Titus would have been one of the, the at least three individuals who took the letter of 2 Corinthians to the church in Corinth. So he would have delivered that. He would have been there as they finalized that, uh, that gift, that financial gift that they were giving to the believers in Jerusalem. Titus played a part in all of that. And, and, and I would say from that, we know that Titus was someone that Paul trusted implicitly. You just see that in those letters. In addition to that, we, we get a little bit about Titus in the book of Galatians. In chapter 2, we see that, that uh, Titus was a Gentile believer. So not a Jewish believer, but a Gentile believer. When Paul went to Jerusalem early in his ministry, the, the church was kind of working through this issue. What do we do with, with this? There's Jewish believers and there's Gentile believers. And the Jewish believers in Jesus thought that there were some Old Testament laws that needed to be followed. And there were Gentile believers that, that said, well, we didn't grow up with that. We don't, why are we following that? And, and the church, this was kind of the first controversy in the church, theological controversy that needed to be worked through. So Paul went to Jerusalem to this council that was gathering there, and Titus went with him. In fact, it was Titus who Paul pointed to as a Gentile believer who had not been circumcised. That was one of the things they were trying to figure out according to the Jewish custom, but yet God was working through Titus. God was working powerfully through Titus. The Holy Spirit was present in Titus. And so Paul pointed to Titus and said, look, here is this Gentile believer. He's not been following the Jewish law as some think he should, and yet God is working in incredible ways through him. So Titus was kind of a, kind of a picture, a, a personal picture in a sense of what the church was wrestling through at that time. So Titus was there in that, in that uh, council meeting in Jerusalem. As far as the, the setting for the actual letter, um, it's probably written late in Paul's life. This would be one of his later letters. If you've got a Bible with maps in the back, there's usually a map of Paul's missionary journeys. These, these three missionary journeys and then this final journey to Rome when Paul was, uh, was uh, in captivity at that point. Those missionary journeys, that map comes from the book of Acts, predominantly. Now, what happened is Paul got to Rome. It's kind of the ending of the book of Acts as well. Paul got to Rome, and it seems after a year or two, Paul was released from his imprisonment. Now, on his way to Rome, they stopped in 
the island of Crete, which is, where the, which is the setting for this letter. They stopped there, but, but because Paul was in captivity, he didn't plant any churches. He, he wasn't allowed to really be a missionary at that point. He was taken captive by the Romans. So he stopped there, but they were taken to Rome. After a couple of years, he was released, and wouldn't you know it, Paul got back to work as a missionary and went back to the island of Crete, this time to plant churches. Titus was with him, and, and for whatever reason, Paul needed to leave, and he left Titus there to help establish these newly founded churches on the island of Crete, and that's why Paul is writing Titus this letter. Titus is still there. There's some direction that needs to be given, so it's kind of an instruction manual for Titus as he carries out that task of establishing these, these new churches on the island. So that's Titus, that, that's the person Titus, that's the letter Titus. A couple good things just to know about Crete, the island, because th this comes into play as you read the letter. We're not sure when, but at some point there, there came to be a, a, a Jewish presence on the island. It would have been before the time of Jesus for sure. There was a Jewish presence on the island, and, and there's some different things that point to that. There's a there's an extra-biblical letter that they have found about, about the treatment of Jews on the island of Crete. Um, if you read in the Bible, if you read in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, it's noted that there are Jews from Crete who heard the disciples speaking in their language when all of that took place. So we know there is a Jewish presence on the island of Crete. It's been documented inside the Bible and outside the Bible. So it's good to know that. And the other thing that's good to know is that Cretans were famously known to be people who were immoral and untrustworthy in nature. I mean, th th this was just kind of the reputation in the Roman Empire for the island of Crete. The Greeks even came up with the word Cretanize, which meant that you dealt falsely with someone. You were a liar. <laughs> If you were Cretanized, that meant you were a liar. So it kind of shows you the, the notorious reputation that this island had. Truth was not something that was very highly regarded on this island. It's probably why we're going to see truth is given such a place of prominence in the letter that Paul writes to Titus. So it is, it is on this island of Jews and liars that Titus finds himself tasked with establishing these new churches that have, that have just been planted when Paul was there. So, so let's dive into chapter 1 this morning, read the first four verses. And right off the bat, we, we get one of Paul's famous long sentences. The first four verses are all one sentence. He's kind of famous for this in different parts of his letter. This is one of them, right off the bat. So Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. See what I'm saying there? That's a long sentence that Paul crams. <laughs> if you wrote a sentence like that in English class, 
you probably don't get an A on, uh, on that assignment. But nonetheless, a couple, couple brief things just to note from the introduction. The first thing that I think jumps out in, in, uh, in verse 2, God is said to be one who never lies. Again, remember, this is Crete. This is an island of notorious liars, falsehood. Paul wrote that in his introduction on purpose, right? There, there, can be, there can be faith in the fact that God, in a sense, what Paul's saying is God is not like the Cretans. God is not one who lies and doesn't even think twice about it. Paul would say God never lies. That is God's character. He is trustworthy. He is true. He does not lie. And in this greeting, when Paul talks about that, he specifically links it here to the promise of eternal life. It says, in which God who never lies, uh, in the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. So God doesn't lie about anything, but specifically here Paul says eternal life. God promised eternal life before the ages began, and it's true. It's trustworthy. We can't see it. Right? We can't see eternal life with our physical eyes. We can't see heaven with our physical eyes. We can't see what lies beyond this life for those who are in Christ. But according to Paul here, we can place our hope and place our trust in our God who is trustworthy, who never lies. Promises that God makes are are as certain as can be, and especially here he links it to eternal life. I think that's a great promise anytime. I think in, in light of the past couple weeks, in light of Aaron's physical death, I think we can find ourselves hanging on to that promise even more, even more than we maybe would have before, holding it even tighter, that that, that is true, that God's promises are faithful. God never lies. When he says we have the hope of eternal life, it's true. He's not a Cretan. He doesn't lie. It's true. When he says he'll never leave us or forsake us, it's true. He never lies. When he says his grace is sufficient for us, it is true. God never lies. So we take that from the greeting. And then, and then one other thing that, that I really want to point out is I think the statement that kind of sets the foundation for all of what Paul is saying in, in his letter here. Let me, let me read it again from verse 1. Starting a little ways through, he says, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So there's three things that Paul brings up there. Faith, knowledge of the truth, and godliness. There's an interplay there that takes place between faith, truth, and godliness. I think it's easy to see the relationship between faith and truth when it comes to, when it comes to a believer, right? Th th those two things feed off each other and, 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 and help to grow and deepen each other. So when a person hears the truth, they, they hopefully will place their faith in that truth. And as they place their faith in that truth, in the God of truth, their faith will deepen. And as their faith deepens, I think they will discover more truth, and then they will place their faith in that truth. And you can see this cycle that just takes place between faith and truth. 
But what we can't ignore here is that Paul links it also to godliness. Faith and the knowledge of truth is linked to godliness. Paul says those things accord with godliness. Some, if you've you got a different translation, it might say those things keep with godliness or those things lead to godliness. There's, a, there's an, an uh, expectation, there's an expected correlation between those three things, faith, truth, and godliness. The cycle of, of, of deepened faith and increased truth, which I just talked about, should be leading, should accord with godliness in our lives. In other words, what once was ungodly should be transformed into godliness. What was once marked by sin is transformed into godliness. And so Paul's letter here to Titus is one of the biblical books that that I think highlights really well for us the tension and the balance between faith and works. There's a tension there, and, and I think we see it so well in this book. There, there, are, there are groups and there are traditions of belief out there that they can, they can tend to highlight one or the other to the, to the neglect of the other. So, so some would, would maybe argue that faith is what it's all about. Faith is the only thing that ought to be discussed. Faith is it. Works have absolutely no connection to salvation. Some would argue that. Others would argue it's all about what we do. Beliefs, uh, okay, those are what they are, but they're not really important. What we do, right action, trumps right thinking every time. There would be groups that would hold to that. The reality that we see, the reality of the gospel that we see in Scripture is that the Bible does not swing to one or the other extreme when it comes to faith and works. The reality we are shown is a reality of tension and a reality of balance. Faith in the God of truth is necessary for salvation and it will necessarily lead to godliness. There's a balance and a tension there. To remove faith or godliness is to to bring the whole thing crashing down. True believers place their faith in the God of truth and then are transformed by the God of truth, transformed into godliness. That faith in the knowledge of truth accords with godliness. This is God's work of transformation ought to be showing itself in different ways in our lives. And, and, and that's some of what we're going to see these, these next few weeks as we go through this book. We're going to see what, what does this gospel transformation look like when we put our faith in that truth of the gospel? What does that godliness look like? How, how, does, how does that transformation play itself out? So that's, that's a bit of what we're going to be seeing as we go through this. So so the first area, if you want to say what, what does that transformation look like, the first area that we're going to focus on this morning is the area of church leadership. So follow along with me. Uh, we've gone through the introduction, so let's pick it up in verse 5 and read down through verse 9. Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. 
For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So we see here what, what Paul directed Titus to do is, is appoint elders. There's all these new church that are, churches that have been planted in all of these different towns on the island. Now, Titus, it's time to appoint elders. It's time to appoint leaders in these, church, in, so, in these churches. And so Paul gives Titus direction on how to do that, specifically on how the gospel transformation ought to be seen in the lives of those leaders. He's making that plain to Titus. And, and I, I think you can make the argument that what Paul writes here describes the transformational work that God desires to do, not just in elders of the church, but in every believer, every single son and daughter of his. The, the, this, these, these outcomes of transformation shouldn't just be limited to elders. This is what God wants to do in all of us, each and every one of us. It's not a, a special work reserved only for certain people. This is for everybody. But in selecting elders, the leaders of those churches, Paul directed Titus to, to ensure that this transformation was taking place. He wanted to ensure that the leaders that were being set up in these churches were leaders that the gospel had, had penetrated their hearts, that they did have faith in the knowledge of the truth, and that it was being seen in the outcomes of their lives. Now, you know, to be fair, we could spend weeks and weeks talking about just these few verses that I just read. Uh, here at EBC, we, we've done an elder exploration class um, a few times, and in that class, we go through a book on biblical eldership that is 300 pages long, and it's it's 300 pages of reading and like, man, you got to really be thinking about it. And, and it predominantly comes from this passage here and the similar one in uh, 1 Timothy. So there's lots that can and has been written on, on this subject. I'm just going to highlight three of them this morning. Um, maybe there's another time to really dive into all of that. This morning, we're just going to look at three of them that, that Paul listed here for Titus in his letter. So, so the first one, Paul, Paul says that, that elders of the church should be above, above reproach, or, or other translations might say blameless, above reproach or blameless. Um, and he actually says it twice in, uh, in these verses here. So the question probably comes up, what exactly does Paul mean by that? What's he getting at there? Blameless, especially, right? If it's translated blameless, Paul, boy, that's setting the bar pretty high, isn't it? I mean, if, if Paul's talking about without sin, sinless, right? I mean, <laughs> none of us are reaching that bar. I mean, that, that's the qualification for the Savior, I had to fill in the Sunday school class for Megan this morning, and I offered our kids $20 from my pocket if they were sinless, and none of them were able to take it. 
That's why I felt pretty confident offering them that $20. I maybe wouldn't have done it if I questioned it. But none of us, I mean, none of us are, are, are sinless. None of us are blameless without sin. Again, to be so is, is the qualification for the Savior. I think the, the phrase that, uh, that the ESV uses that I'm reading from, above reproach, I think that really captures well Paul's intent here. He's not saying that elders have to be sinless. He's saying that they need to be above reproach. It, it has everything to do with what he's saying here, a person's reputation, a, a person's standing within the church. They're standing even within the larger community where the church resides. This idea speaks of, you know, nothing fitting being able to be called into account or, you know, it's, it's unreprovable, unaccused, right? Like, the, like a, any accusation that's made against this person would just fall flat on its face because of how they live. I, my thoughts immediately went to uh, Peter's words in one of his letters. I, I think it sums up this concept perfectly. Uh, in 1 Peter 2.12, it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So it's almost, it's, it's saying, you know, our lives are above reproach, and elders' life ought to be lived in such a way that if a person makes an accusation, it's probably just going to fall flat on its face because there's no basis for it because of how they live. So in, in many ways, you know, Paul's description, he's talking here, I mean, he says, uh, as far as it comes to an elder, about being a steward, being an overseer or a steward. You know, when you think about what a steward is, a steward is someone who gives care and concern to something that is not their own, something that they will give an account for someday. And stewards need to be trustworthy, don't they? A steward needs to be trustworthy with what they have been entrusted with. Now, there's unfortunately times where you hear about an individual elder within a church, or sometimes you even hear about an entire elder group within a church, and, and they, they begin to view the church as their own. They're not viewing themselves as stewards, they're more viewing themselves as owners or directors, or bosses, or things like that. Um, you know, viewing the church as something to meet their own needs for power, or control, or prestige, or whatever it might be, that ought to never be the case. Church elders are stewards. Stewards, what Paul's saying here, stewards that need to be viewed as trustworthy by those around them. They need to be viewed as above reproach, because they're entrusted with something. They're entrusted with the health and the well-being and the discipleship and the protection of a church body. And so that body needs to be able to trust them. And then even beyond that, hopefully the community can also trust the leadership of the church because that's going to then paint the church and especially paint the gospel in a good light. Because if you can't trust the leaders of the church, why would you trust the message that the church leaders are proclaiming? I mean, how can, how can untrustworthy church leaders proclaim the gospel and expect people to receive it well, to take it in, right? To put their faith in it, like we talked about in Paul's opening here. You wouldn't, right? We wouldn't expect that to happen. 
So that's why Paul is talking here about being above reproach. It's not about perfection. It's not about perfection. We're all sinful. We're all in need of a Savior. It's about the gospel having transformed a person to the point where they're trusted by those around them. They're a trustworthy steward who represents Christ well. Again, qualification for an elder But as I said earlier, I think something that's hopefully true of all who are in Christ, that as God transforms us through his work within us, that we would all be that trustworthy person, trustworthy steward. So that's the first thing that Paul, or the first thing I want to highlight that Paul says to Titus. Another thing Paul uh, includes here that can kind of be tricky to decipher is the phrase about an elder's children says his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. In our, in our consideration of, of that, uh, that statement, that phrase, that there's got to be a recognition that, of the fact that our children are unique individuals who make their own choices. We, we can't ignore that. And we, anybody who's a parent knows that, right? If we could make our children do something, life would sometimes be a lot easier, wouldn't it? But our children, just like us, we're, we're, we're individuals. We, we make our own choices. In addition to that, just like it's impossible to find a person who is without sin in every way, it is impossible to find a parent who is flawless in all that they do. Perfect parents do not exist. Now that's, now, that's not to make an excuse to try and attempt to lower the bar here. It's just simply saying we need to bring the entirety of Scripture into this conversation. Okay, we need, to, we need to be open to all of what Scripture tells us about human nature and also what Paul is calling um, elders, church leaders, too. So, so the question is, what is Paul driving at with that phrase? And again, I think we've, we've got to stay in that context of stewardship. That's what church leaders are called to. In many ways, if you think about it, a, a father's role— Biblically, is a role of stewardship over his family. And because of that, I think you can argue that the the family is, in a way, a proving ground for a person to prove their ability to steward the church body. And it's interesting, if you go back, the, the Puritans quite often would refer to family households as little churches, They were known for doing this. The Puritans would look at a family household and they would call it a little church. And I think that really captures well this principle here. Now, a man is is not required to be married. He's not required to have children in order to serve as an elder in a church. But for one in that situation, how he stewards his family shines a light on his qualification to steward the church. Okay, it shines a light on what God's transformation, how that has been working itself out within that person. It's interesting, it's interesting that sometimes you'll see elder boards of a church comprised of people who are predominantly in that role because of business um, experience, success in the business world, or, or they're public officials, or they're military leaders, or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But in reality, I think overseeing, stewarding a family is, is a much 
closer correlation to overseeing a church body than having sold a lot of things at work or, or a military leader or things like that. And I think that's what, what uh, Paul's driving at here, that there's a closer correlation there. And so, so in conjunction with considering you know, the actions of his children of equal importance and, and perhaps even more so is how has this father stewarded his family? How has he discipled? How has he led? How has he served? How has he disciplined his children in that role? That those are the kinds of questions that, that need to be asked. And again, if a man shows he's not being faithful in that role as a father, then how can he be expected to be faithful in that role as an elder? I think that's what Paul's leading us to consider here when we, when we, when we look at church leadership. So the last thing I want to note today is, uh, is verse 9. And again, this, this really comes into play on the island of Crete. Paul says there that elders need to, need to hold fast to the truth of Scripture. They need to be able to instruct others in the truth of Scripture. They need to be able to rebuke those who contradict the truth of Scripture. And again, when you think about the island of Crete, we can see why that was such a necessary qualification. You know, in a setting where truth wasn't always, if ever, given its proper place, the elders in the churches needed to be able to hold fast to their knowledge of the truth. They needed to be able to teach others. They needed to be able to rebuke those who didn't hold on to that truth. And when you look at this list, that really is the only skill that is in this list, is handling the word of God. You know, uh, it's the ability to, to manage a budget or, or hire personnel or, or, or cast compelling vision. That, that's not in here at all. It's holding fast to the word of God. That's the skill that is listed. That's what's crucial and essential in, a, in, in the qualification of church elders. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you could argue that our, our culture, our society is, is very similar <laughs> to that on Crete. The truth is not given the position that it ought to be. Um, and what we have in the Bible, I mean, this is the primary way God reveals himself to his people today. He does it through his word. It's necessary that the elders of the church are able to rightly handle the revelation, to, to proclaim the truth, to teach the truth to rebuke with the truth when needed. And, and, and again, you know, one more time, holding fast to the truth of God's word is a qualification for a church elder, but hopefully that would be true for all who are in Christ. That as God works within us, as he transforms us, as we, as we recognize the truth more and more, that we would hold fast to it, that we would cling to it, that, that we would proclaim it in all that we do. It uh, doesn't mean we have to have a doctorate in biblical studies. All right, few do. But that we, we listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We spend time in the Word. We engage with the Word. We allow God to teach us through the Word, and we cling to those things that He reveals to us, the truth that He makes known to us. It's necessary for elders, but, but that's, I think, God's desire for all of His people as well. So we just highlighted three of those things. Uh, again, uh, 
we could talk a long time about all of them. You look at that list, you look at the list in 1 Timothy, you, I mean, you, you could read all of Scripture, and no one is ever going to be proven qualified according to these things if it's not for the transforming work of God within them. It, it's, it just won't happen without God's work. I think that's part of the reason Paul gives this list to Titus. He wanted to ensure that transformed people were the ones shepherding each local church. But again, as we said, it's not just for elders. It's a glimpse of what godliness looks like when faith and the knowledge of the truth accord with godliness or lead to godliness. This is a glimpse of what that's going to look like in the life of a believer, not just elders. And I think that's wonderful. I mean, we can read that list and feel the weight, but I don't know that we're called to feel the weight. I think we're called to read that list and rejoice that God can do this and is doing this within his people, that he is, has undertaken that transformation project, right? Not a house that time, but, but us, our lives, that he's doing that work within us. We don't, we, don't, we don't stir up this list within ourselves by self-reliance and hard work and things like that. This is what God does within his people. Our calling is to yield ourselves. We yield ourselves to what he's doing in and through us. Something that we walk in as God is doing his work in us. God's work on the inside will show itself on the outside. Faith in the knowledge of the truth accords with godliness, that that's how it works. That's how Paul presented it to Titus. What a blessing that is in so many ways. What a blessing it is that we don't have to conjure up this, these type of things that are listed, and what a blessing it is that we simply yield ourselves to the work of the master carpenter as he does his transformation within us. We yield ourselves to him. He's got a great work that he's doing. And it's not always as fast, you know, we look at ourselves, it's not always as fast as we would like it to be. It's not always in the way that we would like it to be, but he's doing a great work within his people and it's, it leads to godliness. What a blessing. How awesome it is that God loves us enough to not leave us broken and run down and, and worthless, but to transform us to renovate us, if we can use one of those fixer-upper words again. What a great work it is that God is doing. We're going to continue to see that as we, as we go through this as well. So would you stand with me? Let's, let's uh, pray and then continue to proclaim the praises of our God who does this work. God, we come to you and uh, I think we only have to examine ourselves just a short time to know that that apart from you, we, we are so broken. This sinful nature within us is proof of that. God, we thank you that, uh, that you transform. We thank you that you do that work within us, that you love us so much that you look at us and you see not just what we are, but you see what we can be and what we will be as you do your work. 
I give you praise for that this morning, God. I give you praise for that in my life. It is such a blessing to serve a God who does that. God, I pray that that we would rest in that this week. Is it, it's, I always feel like there's a danger reading through a list like that because we can become um, depressed and find ourselves in despair. But God, it's about us yielding to what you are doing. And I have full faith in you who do not lie that that transformation will take place as we yield ourselves to you. We thank you for that promise, God, among so many. Would you continue to do that in great ways this week, transforming us more and more into your likeness, into godliness. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen.